This is episode 51 of Bella in Your Business. Welcome to Bella in Your Business, where Bella will discuss anything and everything about your pet sitting business to help you land on target. So get ready. Bella's got your shoot. Let's jump. Welcome to Bella in Your Business. My name is Bella Vasta with Jump Consulting, and today I have David Barnett with us. David has worked to help small business owners, uh, small and medium-sized business owners, for almost 20 years. As a former business broker and financing broker, so he's a double threat here, Barnett has helped people buy, sell, plan, manage, and finance businesses. Since 2014, he also has authored six books, three of which are Amazon bestsellers. So David, without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey, Bella. Thanks for having me on. For sure. I'm so excited to have you on because the topic of buying a pet sitting business or selling a pet sitting business is pretty hot because the pet industry has been around since like the end of the eighties is when it started. The nineties is when it really started happening. And the two thousands, if you will, is when the population started realizing this was an alternative with your pet. So as we're here now in 2017, there's a lot of people that have actually had their businesses for 10, 20, 25 years, and they're either mm-hmm. looking to get out or there's these newcomers where they know that other people want to sell and they're wondering, how do I value this business? So let's start from the very beginning and build up. What do you think is the biggest mistake that pet business owners make when running a business that can make it hard to sell? Yeah, it's you know what? It's interesting because pet businesses are service businesses generally, mm-hmm. and they have a lot in common with all the other service businesses out there, whether it's repairing cars or putting shingles on houses or a hair salon. And basically, it comes down to this. Most small business people, they get busy working in their business and they forget to build what all businesses really need in order to grow and succeed. And that is the proper systems, policies, procedures, et cetera, that give a business a formal structure. And so when a buyer comes along to look at a business that's for sale, they see a lot of stuff happening. But if they can't quickly see how it all goes together and how they are supposed to come in and manage it, then they start to wonder that, you know, do I have the necessary knowledge and skills to be able to pull this off? And what ends up happening is, you know, you can think about this pretty simply like with an auto repair business, let's say a muffler shop, right? If someone comes into a muffler shop and they don't understand what's going on, then the only person who can ever buy it is another guy with experience in mufflers. Right. And so what ends up happening is if you don't have the systems and things in place, people come in will be scared that they won't be able to operate the business and you'll limit your buyer pool to other people who already know how to run that kind of business. Mm-hmm. That's so true. You've almost got to in a small business mentality, corporatize your business Mm -hmm. where you have like, okay, here's how you do it, you know, and you don't have to be me. And I see a lot of pet businesses. I was even one of them when I had my company. It was my namesake. When I first started way back when, when I was in college and I didn't realize what I was doing, I named it after me. And when you're Mm -hmm. selling a business that's named after you or you put yourself as the spokesperson of the business, that also is tough to sell, right? I mean, that would be someone kind of coming in and saying, well, what do you mean? Like, I can't be Bella, right? Yeah. And it happens with a lot of small places. It's very rare that you can actually take someone's name and make it into a national or even regional brand. You know, restaurants like McDonald's are probably the big exception, but I think that they just happen to grow at the right time when people overlooked that kind of thing, you know, and 
to this day, you know, even in a place like Papa John's, I think Papa John's is probably a made up name that's meant to invoke certain emotion. Yeah. But it was designed from the beginning to become a brand that could transcend and and go anywhere. And so, yeah, that's also one of the things that's going to have an effect on the scalability of the business. Mm -hmm. So if you start a pet business or if you buy one with the idea of having multiple locations, Bella can't be everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And changing is something that people can do. And if people have a long term plan to sell or to grow and they've named it after themselves, that might be something that they want to look at. Right. Sooner rather than later. I love that. And that's something to definitely keep in mind to our listeners who are starting or expanding our businesses. Okay. So I want to think of this like as our listeners. So I'm building my business and what's the best way I can build my business to ensure that if one day I want to put it up for sale, that I could have the best opportunity possible. What things do I need to be doing right now? Well, I think the number one thing is that you have to realize that selling your business is not necessarily going to be something that you control. The time frame, I mean, yes. the top reasons that people sell businesses, only one of those reasons is retirement. The other reasons involve burnout, mm-hmm. divorce, the need to relocate, poor health. And basically four of those five things we don't have control over. So I always teach people that they need to think about their business like any other asset they might have. You know, you think about your house. If you ever need to sell your house, it's got to be in a sellable condition. Right. Right. And so I say if you always maintain your business in a sellable condition, the added benefit is that you're going to actually end up with a business that's easier to operate and will ultimately be worth more because you're going to build the systems and tools. So what do I mean by a tool? Well, I used to own a business that was actually in the junk removal space. And I had a one page sheet, which basically managed our relationship between us and the client for each job. And so when people called in, we would fill in the top information. And then when my driver went to their site, he would literally go down a checklist and check off all the different things he was supposed to do. And then the customer would sign off and the pricing was all there. And then that page was torn in two and it actually became the receipt. And then when that other page came back to the office, we could put in the information and calculate the revenue per minute on site and show the driver at the end of the day what the profitability was for that job. And so it helped to accelerate the learning curve, but it made sure that me as an owner, I knew that my driver was doing every little thing that I wanted to happen when my customers went out and met with you know my employees. Because if you just simply send people out and they have this idea in their head of what they're supposed to do, but there's no way to like track it, what ends up happening is this. One employee thinks they have a good idea of what you want them to do. They go and do it, and then over time, maybe they start to cut corners and things change, and now the service isn't quite being delivered to the level that you want. And then you hire person number two, and because you're so busy, you get person number one to train them. And now you have a person, so imagine the game of telephone that you play as a child, right? So now you have a person learning secondhand the standard that you want. And so what ends up happening over time is the original intention that you had of how the customers were going to be serviced, how they were going to be treated, what you were going to do while taking care of their animals, it starts to get watered down. And then all of a sudden you're just like any other place, Mm -hmm. right? And it becomes a commoditized thing, even though you started off with this idea that you were going to do something special. So if you have the systems in place, the simple tools that the employees have to report to every time they do a job, What it allows you to do is make sure that everything's being done. And when it isn't done, 
one of the things on my checklist when I owned the junk removal company was that once the junk was put into the truck, my employees either had to sweep if the junk was inside or they had to rake up if it was outside. Mm -hmm. And if they checked that box and I did a follow-up call with a customer and found out that they did not in fact sweep, then I knew who checked the box because the driver signed the bottom of the sheet. And I could go to that driver and say, look, you checked the box. You said you swept and I found out that you haven't. So you now need to go do that on your own time. Yeah. So now that you have an accountability loop, yeah, you can make sure that people know that you'll know when they're not doing their job. And it helps you to get rid of the poor employees more quickly. And the good employees are, you know, basically nobody likes to work in an environment where they have pride in their job and they're doing a good job. And the person next to them is doing a crappy job. Totally. Right? Totally. So good employees don't want to share the team with bad employees. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the tools that helps make sure everyone does a great job, then everyone can be proud together of the service they're delivering. Right. And that just builds a better business. That's amazing. Like, I love the ending of that. Like, it makes so much sense. Like, think about, we're always trying to make people be happy to work for us, right? Because mm-hmm. it helps with turnover and, and it's just, it's just good for business to keep your employees. But taking that a step back, as you were saying all of that, I'm thinking about all these consultations that pet sitters and dog walkers are going on. And I keep telling people that they're sales calls. You know, these people, mm-hmm. even though we feel like we already have their credit card information and all their home and pet information, they could still say no. And I have this product called Kickbutt Consultation. Consultations. And that's exactly what we do. We try to drive home to pet business owners that these consultations, one, you should be sending your staff to them. You can't go to all of them because they want to know right. who's going to be caring for their pets. But two, that you have to have some sort of a system and process so that everybody is getting the same type of experience. Ergo, this great story. I just want to share it with you because I think you'll, you'll laugh. I had this client who absolutely loved this pet sitter. And honestly, she wasn't even like our best pet sitter. And she wanted to not book because the sitter was on vacation and book her trip when the sitter was available. So I was like, well, why? Can you just tell me why? She's like, well, the sitter brought my cat some catnip, like from the dollar store that she had left over at her house. And this dollar store catnip like bonded this lady to this sitter. And it was mayhem for the business because now it's going less from, and I hate to say it because it always has a bad connotation, but a corporate mindset where you mm-hmm. have the same systems and processes, the same experiences delivered time and time again, you know, like McDonald's or Papa John's. And we need to be thinking about that in our pet business. And I think that we get too emotional about it sometimes. And we want to have our handprint on everything. And when we're talking about the topic of selling your company, the buyer, the investor, essentially, they're investing their money looking for a return. They don't want a job, (laughs) right? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because there are two kinds of buyers out there. Okay. There, There's what we call the financial buyer. And uh-huh. the financial buyer is someone who needs a cash flow. Uh-huh. So this is a person who maybe has a job they don't like. Uh-huh. Or it's a person who, you know, is underemployed or, or wants a change. And they're going out looking for a business that they can buy where, in fact, they will become the owner and the manager. So they have two hats on at the same time. They have an investor hat on uh-huh. and they also have a job seeker hat on. Okay. So they're looking at what kind of return they can get, but they're also looking at what they can earn for their time. Uh-huh. And they're looking for a business that's going to help fulfill them personally and what they would like to spend their time doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, someone who has a, a love and interest in animals 
they're going to be drawn to the industry and they're going to see this as a way that they can spend all their time basically helping to make sure that animals are cared for properly. And that's going to fulfill them. Right. Mm -hmm. The second type of buyer is what we call the strategic buyer. And they're the person who's going to buy the business and not work there. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be an animal person because you mentioned pet business owners that want to acquire other businesses to grow. Correct. So that's also an example of a strategic buyer. So if you have a town and you have an established pet business and then someone goes up for sale in the next town, mm -hmm. you may want to acquire them in order to grow your business, but you're not going to spend your time over there. You need to have somebody else making sure that things are running. You may be able to make things simpler by having some of the head office functions done at your own head office. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what a strategic buyer looks at when they're looking at an acquisition. Yeah. You know, growing through acquisition is the quick way to do it. Because if you look at the big corporations out there yeah. in the news, you always hear about one big company buying another. Like Rover just buying Dog VK. <laughs> well, exactly, right? Yeah. You very rarely hear about a big company starting a new business because those guys, they, they have to be accountable to the shareholders. And when they lay out a lot of money, they have to know from the beginning there's going to be a cash flow coming back. Right, right. And that's what makes buying a business so smart. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, I want to know what mistakes business owners make when they're trying to sell it. We'll be right back after these words. Want to get yourself or your staff pet first aid CPR certified, but don't know how? Gone are the days of having to take off a day of work just to go sit in a classroom. Take it online. Pro Pet Hero is a veterinarian trained program given in modules that test your knowledge of the material at the end of each section. Pro Pet Hero can even give you a certificate to show all your clients and post it on your website. Imagine future clients being drawn to you because of your extensive knowledge. Sign up today, www.jumpconsulting.net forward slash CPR. That's jumpconsulting.net forward slash CPR. Use coupon code CPR-PETSITTER for 10% off. And we're back with David. He is a former business broker, Amazon bestseller, and we are talking all about how to buy and sell a pet business. So David, lay it down for us. What are the biggest mistakes that business owners make when they're trying to sell? Yeah, easily the biggest mistake people make is that they don't get proper advice as to what their business is worth and they put a price on it that's way too high. And Many business owners, they're experts at what they do. They're not experts at buying and selling businesses. So they take the opinion that they can ask whatever they want. And if someone's willing to pay that price, then somehow it makes sense. And, you know, that makes sense in the world of fine art and in the world of homes because people are buying things because they want them and the money to pay for them comes from an entirely different thing. But when you buy a business the money to pay for the business actually comes from the business, sure. right? So if I'm going to borrow money or put my own cash down to buy a business, I have to see that the money coming back to me makes sense. So I'm going to evaluate the cash flow. Ultimately, that's what we buy when we buy a business is a cash flow. Mm -hmm. I'm going to evaluate the cash flow with respect to the risk I feel is in the business. So do I believe that the business is going to be in the same condition today as it will be in the next 10 years? You know? It's very hard to say what's going to happen in 10 years time. Yeah. So somebody's not going to pay 10 times the earnings, right? Because essentially they're committing the next 10 years of their life 
to working in this business before they get any return of their own. Right. right, right. And, and when you start to look at most small businesses, you realize that that return needs to be seen in literally within two or three years yeah. of making the purchase. And so when a business owner overprices the business, here's what happens. The what I call the competent buyer, the person with money, good credit, who has already talked to their banker who is already looking for a business that they want to buy. They've done research. They know what they sell for in general terms as a multiple of earnings or as a percentage of sales. They come across your business. They see it's way overpriced and they go, wow, that person's nuts. I can't deal with them. And they don't even talk to the seller. Totally. <laughs> right. They go looking for somebody who comes across as being more reasonable. Right? right. If they see a business that is, you know, they think is like 20 percent more than what they think is a fair price. They go, oh, you know, here's someone who's ready to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Right. But if it's two, three times mm -hmm. what it should be worth, they go, that person doesn't know what they're doing. I can't waste my time with them. So the overpriced business actually deters the person who could probably buy it. But it doesn't deter the people who are just the tire kickers who go out making lowball offers everywhere. Right. And so what ends up happening is the person overprices the business. They waste a year of their life talking with people who can never put a deal together anyway. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, they've scared off all the actual buyers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the biggest mistake sellers make. That's great. It's because everyone gets so emotional. And I first, I was that person like five years ago. I had no business doing it. I didn't have a family or a daughter. I was single and I was all like, hey, I'm hot stuff. Like I'm going to sell my business. And man, oh man, did I get a wake up call from the broker I sat down with and talked to. I was coming from such an emotional standpoint, but it was a really great thing, David, because I got to get schooled and educated mm -hmm. on the systems and processes that I needed to do to build my business over the next five years to make it what I really wanted to get for it. And I did. So I think if you're listening right now, Remember, David said there's five major reasons that people sell. And oftentimes we think it's always our choice, but 80% of the time, it's not really your choice. It's a fact of life that comes. So I want to encourage everyone that's listening right now to reach out, just call up Google, brokers, your town, meet with some brokers, show them your financials, tell them about your business and let them tell you what they think your business is worth. Now you will get a scale. People will have different opinions, but That'll give you a good ballpark and it will also help teach you what you should be doing in your business now to prepare for the future. You know, it's just like we were saying, your house, you're going to want to keep it up to date. You're not going to let the weeds and branches and vines grow over it and get all decrepit and not paint it, right? You're just going to keep it up because of your pride. But I really hope that this is resonating with our listeners right now because this is something that you are going to be faced with eventually because as they say, you're not going to take your business to the grave. Chances are you're not going to be doing that. Gosh, there's so many questions I could ask you, quite honestly, because <laughs> this is a real exciting thing. And I personally learned so much from going through this process. Tell me about the difference between using a broker and trying to do it on your own. What sure. are the negatives and the positives? And this isn't a pre-asked question that I had told you I'd ask you, but I think this is also something people think, ah, I could do it myself. So yeah. let's talk about the positives and negatives to doing that. It's funny because basically the book that came out that I wrote last year is oh. actually to answers that question because oh. it, the book is called How to Sell My Own Business. But it's a little bit deceptive because the first half of the book is actually about why you might want to use a broker and how to choose the right one. Because the problem with business brokerage is this, the commission rates 
are tend to be higher than real estate. Mm -hmm. And when people see, you know, what businesses sell for and what the commissions might be, they get drawn into that business. They think, wow, here's a way for me to make a lot of money. And the reality is that businesses can sometimes take years to sell. Mm -hmm. A business broker can spend a lot of time representing businesses that will never sell and never get any money from them. Or if you pick the wrong one. (laughs) Right. And so this is why the rates are higher. So people get drawn into it because they want to be a business broker. And then there's a danger that you end up dealing with someone who isn't really qualified and isn't really going to be able to help you do a deal. So the first half of that book is basically what to look for and how to choose the right broker. The second half of the book is how to do it on your own. And if you do do it on your own, and that's what I help people with today, people who want to sell their own business, what I do is I outline the steps that you take and I tell people where they need to get outside expert help. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about putting the wrong price on a business. Uh So I work with people who want to sell their own business and I'll do the valuation for them for a fee and then they just pay me for that and I say, here's what your business is worth and why. Mm -hmm. And here's what I recommend you ask. Mm -hmm. And then the second step that I use with people is then the packaging, which is creating the information package that you're going to eventually show to a buyer so that you have a professional presentation, which helps to justify your asking price. And then after that, there's the advertising. The second big mistake that people make when they're trying to sell a business is they tell people. You have to keep it secret Mm -hmm. because if people in the general public find out your business is for sale, your business can actually be ruined Yeah, because people don't want to spend the time finding the right pet service business only to then have to deal with someone new, right? Right, So if they find out that it's for sale, they might dismiss you as an option. Or a potential buyer might just wait it out or wait for you to get tired and wary of it, you know? Exactly. So the next step is the advertising. You have to advertise your business in a confidential way. And then finally, what I do with people is I just do some coaching. So I'm coach specific to the process of selling the business. So, you know, I recently helped a woman actually in California sell her yoga studio. So I did the evaluation, I did the packaging. And then while she was talking with different buyers, she booked the occasional 30 minute call with me and I just helped guide her through the process. And she was able to do it. She didn't have to pay the big commission to a broker and, you know, got to keep all the product of her effort. So it really depends on how much time you want to spend doing it because it can become a very time intensive thing trying to sell your own business. And for some people, if they want to be focused on the company that they're running, a broker might be the right choice. I love that you wrote that book and I love that you are, I didn't know someone like you existed. So I imagine rather than spending 10 or $15,000 or whatever it might be or percentage it might be Mm -hmm. with you, it might be couple thousand maybe? Yeah. You know, which is only a percentage of what you would have been paying. Yeah. The reason that I ended up in this, Bella, is because back when I was a business broker, I would work, you know, for years on files. And then sometimes I, you know, the biggest invoice I ever submitted to a client was for $96,000. Wow. So that's what I mean when people are attracted to the business because of the potential to earn money. But I worked for three years on that file for nothing. Wow. Before I got that money. Yeah. And if I didn't sell the business, I wouldn't have gotten anything. And so it's a crazy roller coaster of cash flow for a broker. They always need to be trying to close deals in order to keep their own personal cash flow going. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of the reason why they charge such big commissions. In my business today, I'm working with people every week. I'm issuing invoices every week and they're for much lower amounts, but I don't have those big spikes and deserts in my cash flow. So I can have a more regular life. And you're right, people end up paying me a lot less, but everyone I work with ends up paying me. So 
you know, it's more like a relationship someone has with their attorney and their accountant, Mm -hmm. you know, help me do my taxes and you pay them for it. Help me with this legal issue and you pay them for it. And so I work from a menu of services for both Uh buyers and sellers. And as I do each thing with people, I just build them for that thing. Uh And the other thing that's great about it is that there's an inherent conflict in the normal broker setup between the buyers and the brokers. Uh So if you're a business buyer and you go looking for brokers to help you buy a business, their incentive is to get you to buy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with buyers, my most common piece of advice to most buyers, once I examine a deal with them is don't buy, mm-hmm. you know, this is a bad deal uh-huh. or here's why it's a bad deal. And this is what has to change yeah. in order for it to be a good deal for you. So a broker is not going to give people that advice because a broker only gets paid when you buy. Right. So by being sort of an independent advisor person, I'm able to not have those conflicts And I'm able to work with buyers and sellers Mm -hmm. and help them both achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. And as a quick contrast, I want to throw out there that because it is an emotional thing, it's it's almost an identity crisis. I think business sellers go through it's it the business becomes so much of your identity, especially when you've built it from nothing Mm -hmm. and pride, you know, that. I think a positive to having a broker, and this is you know everyone's going to come to their own conclusion. But for me, at least, I probably would have talked so much that I talked my buyer out of it because I just (laughs) had like diarrhea of the mouth. And I am naturally a coach by trade. And I wanted to start coaching all of it when we were just doing discovery. And like, we just had a letter of intent. So sometimes a broker just to store in the back of your head, there are positives and negatives. But a positive Mm -hmm. is that they can hold back the flow from the fire hose, if you will, which could also kill the deal, you know? Yeah, they can keep the emotion at a manageable level. That's for sure. You're right. Yeah. David, what other books? Because I know that there's more than one book you have. Uh, Give us a quick list and how we can find them. Sure. All my books are on Amazon. My first book was called Invest Local. It's about investing in local small business. I have a book called Franchise Warnings, which talks about the problems I've seen personally as a business broker in the franchise business model. I've got a book called Credit Card Advantage where I show business owners how they can achieve strategic business goals through using credit cards, basically to manipulate operating capital and even for marketing. And then there's uh, 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. That's an ebook that people can find at businessbuyeradvantage.com. And then for sellers, I have the 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. And people can find that at howtosellmyownbusiness.com. And then, of course, there was How to Sell My Own Business, which came out last year. David, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. I know that our listeners are going to be very inspired and motivated by all that you've told us. Also, make sure you guys go and check out his website and his books. And uh, don't forget to also subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher as Bella in Your Business. Guys, always remember to keep jumping and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for jumping with Bella in Your Business. For more information, free articles, free coaching sessions, and more, go to jumpconsulting.net. And remember, Bella's got your shoot.